Hello, church family. Good to be with you all today. As hard as it is for me to um, be looking into the camera rather than into your beautiful faces, I'm grateful for technology, uh, grateful that we get to continue to proclaim and preach the Word of God every week. And we're going to continue the series in James today. Uh, Heather just read chapter 1 of James, verses 2 through 12. And I've titled the sermon today, God's Purpose in Pain. Fifty-two years ago, Johnny Erickson Tata drove into, dove into the shallow end of a lake and she broke her neck. Ever since that day, she's been without the use of her arms and her legs and she's been confined to a wheelchair. Early on, she hated her paralysis so much that she would drive her power wheelchair into the wall repeatedly over and over again until the plaster would start breaking off the wall. Also early on, she found a dark companion called alcohol, which helped her numb her depression. She simply wanted to disappear and die. Johnny's life was never supposed to be this way. It was an unthinkable trial with impossible ramifications. But praise be to God, shortly after her accident, Jesus rescued her from the power and the penalty of her sin, and he rescued her from a hopeless eternity. He didn't rescue her from her paralysis, but she had hope and meaning and purpose in the middle of the trial for the first time. In the coming years, Johnny would start to see God's purpose in this trial in greater ways. A few years after she got saved, one of her friends picked her up, and a few of her other friends went into Baltimore to sing on the city corner. They found that corner and they started harmonizing with their voices echoing throughout the streets. Then all of a sudden, an official-looking guard approached and ordered them to leave. See that no loitering sign, he said? It's 11 p.m. and you kids don't belong here, he barked. Then he pointed to Johnny. And you put that wheelchair back where you found it right now. But sir, she insisted, it's my wheelchair. He told her not to give him any lip and, and put it back right away. Then the little group of friends started chuckling and he realized his error. That night when Johnny and her friends got her home, one kneeled beside her chair and said, Johnny, that's the first time I've ever heard you call it my wheelchair. Thank you for doing that. By you doing that, it's helped me in my own trials. And Johnny said this about that moment. She said, I had welcomed my trial as a friend for the first time, and it felt so good. I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having use of my hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus than to be able to walk without knowing Jesus. Crazy testimony. The power of God. I think if we're honest, we can all recognize a trial when it comes. We can certainly feel a trial when it arrives. But the question that I've been asking this week as I've been studying this text is, what is a trial? When I think of trials that I've experienced, it's always involved the loss of something that I valued or that I thought that I needed. The loss of a job, 
the loss of finances, the loss of health or innocence, the loss of a loved one, the loss of respect or dignity, the loss of comfort, the loss of control. We can define a trial as a loss of something that we need and or value. I want you just to think about that for a moment. Maybe even discuss it as a family or with friends after this video is done running. Or feel free to pause it now and discuss it. Does this definition fit? Can you think of a trial that does not involve a loss of something that we need and or value? For Johnny, it was not only the loss of her arms and legs, it was a loss of the opportunity of ever having a child and holding that child. It was a loss of opportunity of being, ever being able to embrace her husband. You know, for Nancy and I, we haven't had a ton of, like, big trials. Yes, um, my wife has lost some loved ones. Her mother has passed away. Um, her uh, next oldest sister has passed away, and it's been super hard. I would say the trial that's marked us, though, as a family, the greatest, is our uh, financial uh, calamity, where we lost everything of financial value. And that trial for Nancy and I was super hard. And we wouldn't want to repeat it for anything. We wouldn't want to wish it on anybody else. But you know this? We wouldn't trade it for anything. For what God has produced in us, He's purified our hope, and He's deepened our faith as a result of that trial. Just today, trials come in all shapes and sizes, by the way. Big trials, and then those little um, pesky trials every day. Just today, um, I was pondering uh, a communication that I got that um, I was trying to figure out where the person was coming from. And I started taking it personally, and my mind just started spinning. You ever been in that place? Wondering, like, what are they thinking? Um, you, you, you maybe want to, like, return that communication with some harshness. And God didn't speak to me audibly. But as I was sitting there, the Lord reminded me that this was a test, that this was a trial. And I sat there and I asked, is God enough for me? Am I going to allow his strength to be perfected in my weakness? Do I trust him in this test? And then where's my ultimate hope? So this morning I have a few questions for us to ponder together. Question number one is, how do you view trials and suffering? Broad statement, but how do you, how do you view trials and suffering? Do you do everything you can to ignore or repress the trials in your life? Do you do everything you can to try to escape the trials? How do you see God in the midst of your trial and suffering? Do you see Him as happy? Do you see Him as sad? Do you see Him as disconnected and not really caring because He's got a job to do and that's to um, save people? This morning, I know that there are many people in this body that are in the midst of trials. Loss of job, declining finances because of the massive dip in the stock market, 
Your retirement's maybe been pushed out. We've had several deaths of, the, of loved ones in our body. But if you are in the middle of a trial today, the Lord has something for you. If you've not fully dealt with the trials of your past, and we've all had them, the Lord has something for you today. If things are relatively smooth, you're working, you're healthy, your loved ones are working and healthy, the Lord has something for you in this text today. Before we jump into James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, I want to bring your attention to John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. And the reason that I want to go there in the beginning is I want to set the stage at a high level for what God's purpose is in our suffering and also what his posture is. What is his purpose and what is his posture? If you remember, Jesus was very good friends with, his, with Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And they lived in a community of Bethany. And Jesus, who was in a neighboring community, I think it was Galilee, got word that Lazarus was sick and dying. But Jesus was not in a hurry to get there. And when he finally arrived, this is what happens in verse 32. Mary went to meet Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? So the Jews said, Lord, come and see where we laid him. And the next verse simply says, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35. How can it not stand alone? What else is there to say that the sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, wept because his loved ones were grieving the loss of their brother? His posture towards those who are in the midst of trials, weeping. He takes no pleasure in seeing his children suffer. Yet he had a purpose in the trial. If you were to go back to chapter 11, verses 11 through 16, we won't go over all of that. You would see that his disciples questioned him and said, Jesus, uh, we need to get to Bethany so that you can save your friend Lazarus. And Jesus said to them, he has fallen asleep. He has died. And then right after following it that Lazarus has died, he said, so that you may believe. And it isn't saving faith that he's talking about here. He's talking about a deepening faith. That he waited and allowed Lazarus to die so that he could, could prove or deepen the faith of his uh, closest disciples and Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. Several years after Johnny came to saving faith in Jesus, 
a friend of hers shared 10 little words that set the course of her entire life. And here they are. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yet he permitted it. He actually caused it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. Today, my prayer and my hope is that you see God's purpose in, the, in your pain and in your trials. And that purpose is a deepening faith and a purified hope. While at the same time remembering his posture towards you in the midst of your pain. And that's the posture of grieving with you, of weeping with you. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's important to be reminded who James is writing to here. James is writing to believers who are saved by grace through faith. He's writing to his children whom he promises to never leave nor forsake. These are people that have been justified, been declared innocent of all past, present, and future sins. And he's saying, Christian, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. What kind of trials? Trials of various kinds. Relational trials, financial trials, physical trials, spiritual and emotional trials, current trials, past trials, future trials, big trials and small trials. The trials of everyday life that come to every human being, regardless of your faith, regardless of your race or status or nationality. You see, trials show no favoritism. Count or consider, he says, it all joy whenever you meet or encounter trials of various kinds. Seriously? Consider it all joy. I had a friend who used to say sarcastically when this verse was read, uh, then are you telling me that I should say, thank you, sir, might I have another? James is not saying that we should ask for hardship or that we should even enjoy a trial. But when inevitable hardship comes, what should our attitude be? And what informs that attitude? You see, the joy is not in the trial, but in what God promises he will accomplish from that trial. And what he promises is a deepening and steadfast faith in us. And he promises to bring us all the way through the trial and all the way home. No questions asked. James is not in any way saying that God delights in his children's suffering or that we should delight in any way in anyone else's suffering. 
James is saying that what God wants to accomplish through suffering is good. And the good that he wants to produce in us is a deeper faith and a purified hope. Trials will test your faith. And the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is a deeper um, and more resolved faith. I love this passage from Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. He says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. For he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, trees that grow by the water can withstand um, any type of weather. And not only can they withstand it, but that when they're by the water, their roots grow, grow deeper so that they can, they can be steadfast throughout time. They can endure the elements. You know, if you took a tree and put it in a greenhouse, the same tree that's uh, by a stream in the elements, you put it in a protected um, um, uh, greenhouse, it wouldn't have the same deep roots because it's not experiencing the same deep trials. And in a very similar way, the only way that we can deepen our faith and purify our hope in the midst of trials is to stay close to and drink deep of the living water. God permits what he hates so that he can accomplish what he loves. James takes a straight line from verses 2 and 3 and draws it to verse 12 of chapter 1. And we're going to go to verse 12 right now, and then we're going to backtrack. And he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. To be blessed, we throw that, that, that word around all the time. I'm blessed, hey, be blessed, blah, 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 blessed. To be blessed means to be happy. And the joy and happiness that James is referring to is a growing resolve as God's beloved children that he is deepening a steadfast faith and purifying our hope. He wants us to have a deeper faith and trust in him, and he wants to have our hope set fully on him, and what we're going to receive is our inheritance at the end of this life or when Jesus returns, whatever comes first. Doug Moo, a, a, a seminarian and a, a professor at Master's College, Doug Moo tells us that verse 12 takes the form of a blessing rather than an exhortation. James' point here is, that, is not that you need to be steadfast and persevere to the end. That's true, that all true believers um, will persevere to the end, but that's not James's point here. His point is, is that if you are a Christian, you will, by his strength, persevere to the end. And you will receive the crown of life. 
You see, there's no trial, big or small, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future that can separate you from the love of God. God will see his children all the way through this life and all the way through the trials of this life. Those who love God, he says in verse 12, will receive the crown of life. Or more literally, what he's saying here is that they will receive the crown that is life. You see, the crown is, is a, a metaphorical crown. Not, don't think um, heavy metal with jewels in it. Think about a reef that gets put on a runner's head when they win the race. When we finally complete this race, we will receive the crown that is eternal life, where we will be in the presence of our loving Savior forever. So James started off in verses 2 through 3 by saying, consider pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. And he ends with this section, telling us to be blessed or happy, or telling us that that blessedness or happiness um, is comes to the man who remains steadfast under trial. James, in essence, is asking this. Are you looking for joy and happiness? Is there any one of us that could answer answer it honestly and say, no, we're not. I am. And, And God wants that for you and I. It's all throughout the Scripture. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy this life. Rejoice. Be blessed or be happy. James reminds us of the dual purpose of the painful loss of something valuable. And that's to strengthen and deepen our faith and to purify our hope. And as we have a deeper and more strengthened, steadfast faith, and as our hope is purified, uh, we will be amongst the, the happiest and most joyful people that have ever lived in spite of the trials that God in his providence allows in our life. Trials are the testing of faith that produces steadfastness. I want to take us to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. It's a, it's a parallel passage. There's actually all kinds of parallel passages. Romans 5 would be another one. But listen to what Peter says about, um, about trials. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and it's unfading. And it's being kept for you in heaven. The crown. Life that is eternal. He uses Three words to give us a picture that nothing can happen to our inheritance. It won't perish, it can't be defiled, and it'll never fade. And then in verse 5 he says, he says, who by God's power, who? You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the crown being protected, is your inheritance being protected, but nothing can happen to you. You're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved in various trials. I love this, that Peter actually acknowledges that that we're to grieve in trials. 
where the joy and the happiness comes from is knowing that in God's providence, He is producing a steadfast, deepening faith and that He is purifying our hope. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can consider it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds because we know that God will produce deepening faith in us. He will sanctify us whether we like it or not. The work that He begun in us, He's going to bring it to completion. And can I just say before this next verse that it's a lot more peaceable, a lot happier, a lot more joyful if we actually um, engage in the process. Here's what he says in verse 4. And let, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here in verse 4, James says in essence, embrace God's good purpose in your life. Let it have, let it have its full effect. And by the way, um, this is a command. This is an imperative. Let it have its full effect. Don't run from it. Don't interfere with God's plan to grow a deeper and increasingly steadfast faith through these trials. Don't try to figure it out on your own. The full effect of steadfastness is that, he says, that we may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. It produces the most important thing that a human being could ever want, and that's a deepening more intimate relationship with the one who created us to be loved by him. And the one who loves us the most, the one who brought us into his forever family, has purpose in your pain. And he describes it further at the end of verse 4. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. It's an already but not yet concept. Because believer, in a sense, you are already perfect. You've been perfected by the shedding of Jesus' blood. But we're still being perfected. The dross, if you will, in our flesh is being burnt off. We've been perfected by justification. We've been declared innocent. We've been brought into his kingdom never to be banished. And we're also being sanctified. We're being perfected. We're looking more and more day by day like Jesus. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, Jesus' crucifixion, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected or sanctified. And he goes on at the end of verse 4, And so that you may be complete, Trials like nothing else show us that joy comes from fully trusting in the Lord for His strength and His provision. In the midst of trials, we see that His power is truly perfected in our weakness. Our ability to stand, our ability to stay calm, our ability to be kind, to be hopeful, it's all from Him. It's all produced by His Spirit. And then finally, he says that, that um, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that we might lack noth- nothing. Earlier, I defined a trial as what? 
I define a trial as the loss of something we need and or value. James is saying that trials produce a steadfastness or a deepening and strengthening of our faith. And as a result of faith in Christ, um, you, believer, at any moment in time, have everything you need for life in godliness. And the more trials we endure, the more we lose. Yet the more we gain because of a deeper faith and a more purified hope, we're more content, we're more joyful, we're more happy in Christ, in Christ alone. So James encourages believers to let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't ignore the trial. Don't suppress it. Don't fight it. Don't run from it. Run to the one who perfects and completes you while giving you everything you need for life and godliness. And in this next section... It's one of the most misquoted sections of God's Word and misused sections in God's Word uh, in, in, in the entire Bible. But with that, it has an amazing truth with a specific application for the weary, doubting Christian who's in the middle of a trial. James says in verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any believer in any trial, that's the context here. Um, James isn't totally ADD. There's a a flow of thought here. And he's telling us um, how to respond to um, trials of various kinds. If any believer and any trial lacks wisdom. If you're having a hard time seeing the trial from God's perspective, and your loss, if I might, is clouding your ability to see God's purposes in it, James says, ask him. Go to him. Ask God in prayer. You see, we can come to the Father anytime with anything. The veil has been torn. We can confidently come before the throne of grace. Especially when we are requesting understanding and wisdom for his purposes so that we can be strengthened towards joyful steadfastness. John Calvin summed this up brilliantly. He said, since we see that the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength, but that he is ready to help us, provided we ask, let us therefore learn whenever he commands anything to ask him the power to perform it. You see, God never asks us to do anything that he doesn't give us the strength or the power to execute. James tells us that when we ask, that God will give generously and without reproach. He will generously give wisdom needed to endure any trial. Our God is a generous God. If there's any doubt in that at all, all you have to do is gaze at the cross. 
All you have to do is be reminded that God so loved you from the beginning of time that he gave his only begotten son. He is generous with giving wisdom to his children who are in trials of various kinds. And he gives wisdom without reproach. What this means is that he gives wisdom without finding fault. He never tires of you coming to him and asking. He's never sitting there with arms folded going, okay, really, Dan? Again? We've been doing this for 40 years. Nope, his ear is inclined. His arms are open. There are no stupid questions or stupid prayers. Psalm 25, the psalmist prays, make me, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember his goal in trials is, to, is a deepening and steadfast faith in him, to trust him more. So James says, um, ask in faith, believing that he wants to hear from you, believing that he will generously give wisdom without reproach. This next section, verses 7 through 8, uh, 6 through 8, it can be a little bit sketchy, a little bit hard to understand, quite frankly. But you've got to understand the character of God and the privileges that he's given you and I as his children to, to um, keep this verse in the right light, in the right context. James says, but let him who asks, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Here's what James isn't saying that we can't have struggles, that we can't have doubts, that we can't wrestle with different parts of God's word. He describes the doubter as double-minded, a person who should not expect to receive the answer from the Lord. And someone who uh, is a double-minded doubter might um, call out to God and ask for wisdom and ask God why, but at the same time, he's asking God, they'll hedge their bets and get worldly wisdom. And whether to stay in this trial or run from this trial or persevere in this trial. God is patient in our doubting in the midst of trials. But when we stay in a place of doubting, God's eternal plan to deepen and strengthen our faith instead of relying on, instead we rely on the world's wisdom, uh, it de that doesn't honor him. But he's also patient with that because he has all the answers. He wants to strengthen you to help you get through it. You see, when you rely on the world's wisdom, what you're going to hear most of the time is that you, de you deserve a better life than that. And the answer to that is actually, um, that's actually wrong. Because every single human being um, deserves hell. And those who um, are amongst God's children, those who have been saved by grace through faith, are never going to taste a spark. But what we deserve 
is not what we got. We got, we got mercy. We got grace. And when we, when we pit God against the world, James says it's like being driven and tossed by the wind. And by, the, by waves, excuse me. It's like being in a, a violent wave in the ocean. If you've ever been in a wave that you, like, you're upside down, you don't even know which way you're going. You actually start forgetting where the wisdom is coming from. So here it is. It's not that God won't hear your prayer when you doubt. It's that you won't hear or receive his answer. That's the point. He wants you to trust in him. When we ask for wisdom in a trial while at the same time trying to escape or seek an answer from the world, James says we're double-minded or double-souled. We have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. And this double-mindedness starts seeping into all of life. James continues in verses 9, 10, and 11. He continues the context of trials and testing and the strengthening of our faith. But now he contrasts two different sets of Christians. One category is the Christian who has little. And the other category is the Christian who has much. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is referring to Christians that have little resources. And might I remind us here in northern Colorado that 80% of Christians around the world live in some way, shape, or form, of some shape of poverty. They're economically deprived. And what he's saying is they have nothing tangible to boast in. And what James is saying is when you have little, when you are underprivileged, boast in the privilege that God has given you that you are his children, that you're his beloved children. Boast in your high position as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. You may not have much. You may have lost everything. But by God's grace, you will receive the crown of life, and you are fully loved and accepted by your Creator. What James is not doing here, he's not making a commentary on the value of being poor or the value of being rich. But then he does speak to rich believers. And he tells rich believers, on the other hand, that that they're to boast in their humble position as slaves to the Lord. He says, and the rich boast in their humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Just as the world sees um, um, those that don't have much as failures, unfortunately, the world also tends to esteem the wealthy, the successful, and the educated. By the way, this section has nothing to do with the difficulty of a rich man being saved or the evil of riches. However, the Bible does tell us over and over again that there is something something intrinsically deceitful about or deceptive about wealth. It's all too easy to view our accomplishments and to view our position as some type of higher status that we earned rather than we were given. 
So James says the rich should learn to boast in their humiliation. Not in who they are or what we have in this world, but in what Jesus did when we were completely bankrupt and destitute spiritually. Realizing that our status in God's kingdom is not our doing. Our salvation is all from Him. Additionally, don't miss this. We should not boast in our worldly riches, accomplishments, and position. But we should boast in God who made all of that possible. He gave all of that to us. You have nothing in your bank account. You have no letters behind your name. You have no position or status that is, without, that is not from the hand of the Lord. And by the way, being rich, being middle class, upper middle class, being wealthy is not, does not mean it's a, an escape from the trials of life. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more that you have to lose. At the end of the life, you're not going to take anything with you. So in the same way that he encourages the poor to boast in their standing in God's kingdom, he encourages the risk to boast in the reality that they are beloved slaves of God and everything that they have in their life is from him and is to be used to serve him. He says, boast in your low estate. We are nothing without the Lord and his kindness. And then he comes full circle. James chapter 1, verse 12. Happy is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. God's purpose in trials which test our faith, not in a testing that, like, is he in the faith or is he not in the faith? Is she in the faith? Is she not in the faith? But strengthens our faith, that type of testing. His purpose is to deepen our faith and to purify our hope. And his posture towards your trials is grieving, is weeping. He tells us that we're to weep when others weep, we're to grieve when others grieve, and he grieves and weeps when his children, those who, that, who he has saved by grace, weep and grieve. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. When you are stuck, when you feel alone, when you're in the midst of a trial that might seem um, small to somebody else but big to you, any kind of trial, physical, financial, relational, emotional, Cry out to God, the one who will answer generously and without reproach. Seek him for answers and wisdom and strength and watch how he meets you. Brothers and sisters, this is a tough time that we're living in now, but we've got a good God. We've got a good God that allows us to walk through trials because he wants a deeper and closer relationship with us. And he also is pulling things away that we love because he wants to purify our hope. He wants to, he wants to be our all in all. He wants to be our delight and our joy. The famous words of John Piper, 
if I can remember them, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him in any and all situations. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. We thank you, God, uh, for this uh, section of Scripture where we're reminded of your purposes in our trials. And God, it blows me away that you would give me temporal trials in order to uh, deepen my faith and my relationship with you. It blows me away, God, that you would um, help me purify my hope so that I would uh, loosen my grip on the things of this world. It blows me away that when I'm um, stuck once again in the middle of a trial, in desperation, that we're told to ask and that you'll give us wisdom and understanding that you'll strengthen us in the midst of that trial. And it blows me away that the crown of life or life that's my crown is awaiting and that there's nothing that can separate me or any of your children from your love now and for eternity. And all of God's people said, amen. Love you, church family. Hope you have a great week in Christ.